This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach, heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and today we're talking about an incredible book. I have it right here. It's very dog-eared from lots of uh, lots of use, and it's this book right here. It's called The Other Side of Terminal, Take Back Your Life from Cancer Now, and it's a powerful very hopeful and deeply inspiring real life account of one man's 30 year battle with cancer written by Alan Chankowski. Alan Chankowski is an author, international speaker, sales promotion, marketing expert, and 31 year cancer survivor who is currently surviving a rare form of stage four cancer. As the author of his best selling and award winning book, on the other side of Terminal, Alan hopes to share his incredible story of survival by inspiring readers with an enduring message of hope and resilience in the face of a life-shattering diagnosis. I want to also tell you all that this book is also a love story. Alan credits his survival to the love, optimism, and tireless support of his longtime girlfriend, Cynthia, and their four children. He's committed to raising awareness about cancer and helping other survivors find the strength they need to reclaim their lives from illness. He has been invited to speak at major international cancer events, most recently as the keynote speaker at Target Cancer Foundation's 2022 gala. He was also invited to be the patient keynote at a precision medicine conference where he presented to world leaders in cancer research, molecular pathology, and oncology. Alan has appeared in a television commercial in support of the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation, a movie theater trailer, and he's been referenced in many national and international news publications. Born and raised in Montreal, Quebec, my hometown, great place. Alan currently resides in Toronto, Ontario. In his spare time, he can be found winning backgammon tournaments at the United States Backgammon Federation, where he won the intermediate division of the 2021 U.S. Open. Congratulations. We'll give you more information about how you can connect with Alan and his work at the end of the show. So now let's turn to Cynthia. Alan's partner in life is Cynthia Brown, and Cynthia Brown is a proud mother of two accomplished adult children who are embarking on their own successful futures in medicine and computer science. She is grateful and fortunate to have a loving and supportive relationship with her longtime partner, Alan, and his two very talented children. Cynthia has worn many hats in her career in nonprofit education and finance, to name a few. She has found great fulfillment as a preschool teacher with a particular interest in the educational and emotional support of children with special needs. After Alan's terminal diagnosis in 2016, she retired to focus on both of their emotional and physical healing. 
pretty incredible. She now brings her organizational and business management skills to her financial and human resources role in a friendly and compassionate family law firm in Toronto. Cynthia draws strength from her relationship with her cherished partner, Alan, and all four of their children. In her spare time, she has participated in amateur musical theater, where I know her from, that fundraises for various deserving charities. This has been a powerful source of positivity and energy, and she feels privileged to have gained an extended and supported family of friends. She marvels at the tremendous bravery Alan summoned to share his intimate story with the world in the form of his award-winning book and media outreach. She is inspired by his driven focus to help others reframe and actively pursue their own inner ability to take control of their diagnoses and reclaim their physical and emotional futures. She hopes that together they can share their story to make an impactful difference for many years to come. Alan and Cynthia, welcome to Finding Your Bliss. Thank you, Judy. So great to have you here. Alan, you were 21 years old when you were first diagnosed with cancer. Can you take us back to that time in Montreal and that moment when you found out about this? And I just want you even to pause at what it was like hearing those words, which are often the most dreaded words in the English language for anyone. And when you heard them, what was that like for you as a young kid of 21? Sure. So I went to my doctor, wasn't feeling well. Family physician suggested that we do a chest x-ray. And I took that x-ray, drove to school, to university, and got the call from uh, his office indicating that Mm -hmm. the radiologist had called and let him know that there was a mass in my chest that needed to be investigated and the likelihood that it was cancer was high. I was literally in my car when that call came in and the major blow of hearing that you have cancer or may have cancer at the age of 20 or 21 is of course devastating. Um, there's no better word to describe it. It's just, it's just utter devastation and a feeling of emptiness. But what complicated it in my particular case is that my family uh, had lost my brother three years earlier to a tragic car accident. So I was particularly mindful of the impact of any kind of health issue on my parents. So that created an additional layer of dread and fear and concern and anxiety. So it was a very difficult time. And you kept it a secret from your parents, which is so incredible. I I can't imagine any child doing that. But you were so worried about affecting them emotionally after the devastating loss of your brother that you actually didn't tell them. And it was only when you came home from, I think, your biopsy and it described for us that the bandages were showing through your shirt and they it it was it was impossible to hide it any longer. So first I was living with them while I was in university in Montreal. So it was very difficult for me to sort of hide all these medical tests going on in the background. But I felt I needed to do that in order to make sure that they were protected from information that they didn't necessarily need to know. So for example, if it turned out that I didn't have cancer, why would I expose them to the possibility of me having cancer if I didn't actually have cancer? 
So I, I did a fairly good job in hiding all these testing that needed to go on to confirm it was cancer, including the biopsy. But up until I got home, I realized at that point with a bandage poking out from my collar that I had no choice. I had to explain to them what had happened and why I was being investigated. And that was a conversation that I don't have the best memory, but that's something that I'm never going to forget. That was a very difficult period for my family and myself. And that conversation specifically was impossibly difficult. I can't even, and I'm going to get to Cynthia soon. And I know Cynthia is waiting patiently here and I really want to get to her, but I, I want to just ask you what ultimately propelled you to write on the other side of Terminal. What motivated you to write this book? So there's various reasons why I wanted to write on the other side of Terminal in no particular order. First is that I was extremely private around my diagnosis around the terminal nature of my disease, I was very, very concerned about the impact on my parents, my kids, and and everyone around me in my my own world. I was very concerned about impact. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I promised myself that if I did live the five years, which I wasn't supposed to live according to the statistics, but if I did live those five years, that the way in which Cynthia and I managed to do this together was a series of, of a process rather that needed to be shared widely with our community because the way that we did it was unique and it was effective and it allowed me to live beyond the five years. So I wanted to share the information that I felt the community needs to know. The other reason why I wrote the book is because while I was going through the five-year period, I asked Cynthia to be kind of quiet with me, to not reveal my dire situation to anybody. And it was a very big ask to ask someone to keep that inside, to not appreciate the fact that Cynthia herself needed some support. And she could have benefited from talking with friends, family, perhaps a professional. And I asked her not to do that for my benefit. Mm -hmm. And she did it. She came inside Mm -hmm. my closed off world for me. Mm -hmm. And I realized, you know, at the four year mark, three, three and a half, four year mark, that this was a very unfair for me to have done, to ask her to come in with me and to close herself off from her world. So the book, Mm. in part, is very much dedicated to Cynthia and the effort that she made to protect me and the love that she shared with me. I felt I needed to give back, and I did so in a public way. So the other reason I wrote the book is because I needed to show my kids that when you are provided or given or issued a horrible prognosis, that you don't just roll over and give up, that you challenge, that you ask the right questions, that you do the digging and the researching that you need to do. And I wanted to show them how one gets up from this kind of impact of being told you have a terminal illness. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to leave a legacy for my kids 
so they could always turn to this book should they want to be inspired, should they want to hear from their dad if I'm no longer available to them, that there'll be a permanent reminder of what I did, how I did it, and hopefully that could help them through their own struggles in life. Well, you actually acknowledge your two children at the beginning of the acknowledgement page, and I encourage you all to get the book on the other side of Terminal, Take Back Your Life from Cancer Now by Alan Schenkowski to read what Alan writes to his two children and to his parents, mom and dad. But I am going to read, Cynthia, what you wrote to her, uh, unless you want to read it. Would you like to read what you wrote to Cynthia? No, you can go ahead and read it. Okay. Our heart, Cynthia. Our hearts were eternally bound together from the day we met. Words don't exist to convey the love and gratitude I have for you. What you have done for me, for us, and for our families is the most heroic thing I have ever seen or experienced. I am awestruck by you and your instinctive desire to continually offer support in the most loving ways. I'm the luckiest person to have you. If that's not the most romantic thing I've ever heard, I I don't know what is. I mean, that's pretty amazing. How did that feel for you, Cynthia? And here come the waterfalls. Yeah, (laughs) there they come. (laughs) I'm a crier. (laughs) How did that feel for you when you read those words? Um, Impactful. It, uh, yeah, right to the heart. He's a special man. Yes, yes. And um, it's a a special book. It's a special acknowledgement. And um, it all comes from a special place. He has a very special heart and his intention is to help as many people as he can. What you all can't see is that Cynthia is crying and she really does have the biggest heart. And so do you, Alan. And in the midst of struggling, you've always remained outward focused and other centered, which I find to be so exemplary. Cynthia Brown, your lifelong partner, is as important to your story as anything. And the love story you share is truly one of inspiration. And for lack of a better word, as I was writing the script, I'd have to say bliss. Cynthia, can you tell us about that first date, which you kept extending the evening, both of you, into three different locations and how you knew this was your person how it was something extraordinary and how you both never wanted the day to end. Can you take us back to that night? Yeah, that's true. That is, uh, we were introduced through a mutual friend who we also happened to meet. I met through a musical theater and he knew our our kids actually happened to go to the same school, which was the same school your kids went to. (laughs) And uh, we met over text messaging, I guess, and set up a date to meet. And yeah, we went to to a venue, we had dinner and we both kind of, you know, dinner was over and we wanted to get to know each other more. So he suggested, let's go to a place next door. And we were talking there, we were having so much fun. And then we just, we didn't want it to end. We just kept talking. It was a really long day getting to know each other. And I remember looking at him and him smiling at me, this <laughs> tilt of the head and a smile. And I thought, yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah, is, it's in the smile. <laughs> you can tell it's in the smile, it's in the eyes. And I could see his soul and we just, we connected wow. immediately. Yeah. And the next day he went out and met all of my friends. <laughs> so it was, it was. That's right. He met, he, as it says in the book. Yeah. 
it was a special connection. I mean, that he would throw himself in there and, you know, meet a whole slew of, of, of my friends just walking in, like, <laughs> and all my friends could tell they would stand, oh, he's so nice. I really like him. You guys are good together. How long have you known each other? When did you meet him? And I said, yesterday. <laughs> but yeah, it was an instant. It was an instant connection for us. Yeah. I, lo- I love that story that he met 25 of your musical theater friends the next day. Yeah. It's a, great, a yeah. great story in the book. How have you been able to so gracefully not only cope with Alan's cancer diagnosis, but help him survive it and even soar above and beyond it? What do you think it is in you that's, because not everyone could do that. Um, it's love. <laughs> it's love. It's, um, it's admiration. It's, um, you know, knowing some people need someone to help prop them up. Um, mm-hmm. He can do it himself. Just, we all have moments where we need somebody beside us. Mm-hmm. Um not in front of us, not behind us, but beside us. Yes. And that's what I was there for. How have you, Cynthia, been able to stay so optimistic and positive, even when you found out that Alan was terminal? Because that's tough stuff. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's kind of how I'm, I'm made, <laughs> I guess. I just, I need to look for that positive side. I need to find the way, that's the way to get through the day, right? there are the positives and the negatives and to get through things you've got to to look there is always something there's always something there even if it's very small find it and hold on to it because that can grow and you want that part to grow not the negativity to grow can you give us an example of something you would find positive in a day that was very difficult but you still found that glimmer of hope so well For one example in particular, Alan's a researcher, as you can tell. I mean, that's what this is all about. He's a researcher. He needs to know the information, gather the information, and then make educated decisions, which, Mm -hmm. you know, we should all do. I admire him for that. In his researching and his analysis, he was very focused on what the statistics were presenting to him. Mm -hmm. If you want to chime in. Yeah. So it was 80% of people with my stage of cancer would not survive three years. So the, the odds were overwhelming yeah. and I was overwhelmed. And I think I, Cynthia, yeah. I think I know where you're going, but so. So, yeah. So he was focused. He was focused on that. He was, you know, that's mm-hmm. it. I'm basically done. What's the point here? Mm-hmm. Not that he was not going to try, but, but that's what mm-hmm. he was saying to me, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I said to him, look, statistics are statistics. They're there to give us a general idea, but you're giving an average because there are people who are way up here on the statistics and way down here on the statistics. Mm-hmm. And just because that statistic doesn't mean that you're going to be that person in the middle. You could be that one unusual person. No one's to say you can't be. So that's what I kept trying to tell him. Yeah, sometimes it's annoying to hear that when you want to hear something else. That's what I wanted to focus on. That's where I wanted to go. I didn't want to focus on the other. Yeah. I know you're very emotional and I and I want to just get the chronology right here because Alan, you were diagnosed at 21 with cancer. You yes. also had a heart attack in 2013 at the age of 43. Then you yes. were diagnosed with terminal cancer at the age of 47. I can't believe how many times you've had the rug pulled out from under you and each time you've come up fighting. 
And in August of this year, you mentioned to me that you found out in a lung biopsy that you have a spot of cancer there and they're operating on you. So even at 47, you were given this terminal diagnosis and you've been able to survive and thrive. Where do you get your incredible will to survive from? Yeah, I think there's a recipe. It's a unique recipe for me. And the recipe includes a natural human ability to want to survive. I think we all have part of that in us Mm -hmm. as just being human beings. Mm -hmm. The second part is I was traumatized at the age of 18, 19 rather, when my brother was tragically taken from us in a car accident. And I saw the effects that it had on my parents. And I just could not bring myself to the point where I've seen this story before. I've seen this movie. I know what happens because I've seen it. I could not be responsible for doing that to them again. So I needed to do anything and everything I could to honor my parents, to protect them the best I could. So I think that is the two main ingredients as to what motivated me to do anything and everything to want to survive. What's so hopeful about your book, and I'm going to say the name again, because it's really a book that everyone should read and give anybody that is going through this, a family member or the patient themselves on the other side of terminal, because it is so hopeful. And in it, you say, that cancer care has changed, allowing more people to live longer with terminal disease today than they would have been able to 30 years ago. Where are we at with cancer care in Canada right now? And you talked about this important word, sequencing. Can you explain what sequencing means and why it is so all important? We're going to go on a short commercial break. When we come back, we're going to find out why it's so important. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. Hi, we're back and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio and I'm here with cancer survivor and author Alan Shankowski and his life partner, Cynthia Brown. And I was just asking you, Alan, before the break, what sequencing is and why it's so important. Okay. So unfortunately, I've had the experience of living with cancer since the age of 21. So I've been able to more or less follow the trajectory of of cancer care in the country. And I can tell you that in 2016, when I was terminally diagnosed, the state of cancer care in the country was such that genetic sequencing of one's tumor was not and currently is not a standard of care in the country. 
what they're doing currently within the provinces is they're sequencing patients' tumors with a very select few genes. And let me go back and explain a little bit about what sequencing is and why it's critical that people understand it as a means to living longer with cancer. People who have cancer, their cancer is a living entity within their body. And because it's a living entity, it has its own biology. It has its own kind of DNA structure and it, its growth is driven via various pathways that are either accelerated or inhibited. And the only way to find out how a patient's tumor is growing or what drives its growth is to analyze its DNA on a comprehensive basis. That's what Cynthia and I did. We had my tumor comprehensively sequenced. And the results of that sequencing led us to understand that there was a driver to my tumor that needed to be starved. So by starving the tumor of, of its food that it needed, we basically found its Achilles heel and allowed me to live longer than other people with my cancer would have lived had they not had their tumor sequenced. So the standard of cancer care right now in Canada is such that there are patients who receive what's known to be as hotspot testing. So these are genes that are tested on a very narrow basis. So when I say comprehensive sequencing, I'm talking like 300 and 350 genes that are sequenced entirely so the oncologist can receive a comprehensive understanding of what is driving this cancer's growth in any one patient's body. So I'm trying to right now, as, as we speak, with the campaign that the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation is engaged in called The Art of Conquering Cancer, I'm trying to be a voice for cancer patients. I'm trying to encourage them to have their tumors comprehensively genetically sequenced and for them to understand that scientists, particularly at the Princess Margaret, are using science in a very creative fashion to apply to patients like me, who otherwise would not have survived had they not been creative in the way that they use precision medicine. So how were you able to achieve this? Did you have to discuss this with your oncologist? How can people who are listening achieve this if they want to do what you did? Okay, so the first thing is, if you are diagnosed with having a cancer, your doctor will likely know where that cancer has come from. So for example, if it's found in the breast, it's usually going to be breast cancer. If it's found in the colon, it's usually going to be colon cancer. So knowing where it's coming from is important, but it's not enough. So what we did was my cancer in 2016 that was a terminal diagnosis was a salivary gland cancer. It was a head and neck cancer. Mm -hmm. And because we had it genetically sequenced on a comprehensive basis, we found that one of the drivers of this particular cancer is an androgen receptor, which means that the cancer needed androgens for its growth. So the thinking was that if we starved the tumor of androgens, it would stop its growth. And that's in fact what we did. Wow. And having androgen deprivation therapy is a mainstay treatment for mm -hmm. prostate cancer victims. So here I was mm -hmm. in the head and neck clinic at the Princess Margaret, having a head and neck cancer, but being treated mm -hmm. in the prostate cancer clinic with a prostate cancer drug. 
So if that doesn't epitomize what creativity is, I don't know what does. And that's why the Princess Margaret is so good at what they do because they were able to creatively fashion my treatment from another cancer type. But what he did was because he had that sequencing done, he was able to find this distinction and going into the oncologist, they were ready to treat him with the standard of care for his head and neck cancer, which didn't give him good prognosis. And because Mm -hmm. he had that sequencing done, he was Mm -hmm. able to present this information to the oncologist and say, well, what about this option? So creativity and thinking outside the box really help. And you help readers understand this with this book. And there's so much wonderful information in this book. You've really done some exceptional research in describing even some of the terms, including chemotherapy, dual immune therapy, radiation, and some terms that the public may not know about, like comprehensive genomic profiling. Can you explain the importance of comprehensive genomic profiling as a critical diagnostic tool? Yes. So... The bottom line is that the real diagnosis for anyone's cancer is found within the comprehensive genomic profiling. In other words, Mm -hmm. if a patient doesn't have their tumor comprehensively genomic profiled, Mm -hmm. they do not know what the real diagnosis is. All you know, for example, is if you have a cancer found in the colon, that you have colon cancer. That's not enough. Mm -hmm. The real diagnosis Mm -hmm. is found in the sequencing. So patients need to ask their oncologists if they can get their tumors comprehensively sequenced. And what that means is that the hospital will take their tumor sample that they've got from a a biopsy Mm -hmm. or from a surgical excision, and they will send it out to a special lab that focuses strictly on the genetic sequencing of patients' tumors. Now, in Canada... Mm -hmm. I only know of one lab that does comprehensive genomic profiling, but the actual work happens in the United States. So we actually don't have a physical lab in Canada that can do a full panel of comprehensive sequencing. What we do in this country, in Canada, is we do hotspot testing, but it's not enough Mm -hmm. because the real diagnosis Mm -hmm. is found in the comprehensive sequencing. Mm -hmm. I wanted to speak to another part of all of this, which I think you address so beautifully in the book. You write in the book that there are people you stop communicating with when you need it to turn inwards and how important it is at one point in your cancer journey just to turn in inwards and shut the windows and the doors and tune people out. And so you you wrote, and I quote, phone calls stop, emails stop, text messages stop all contact stops. The relationship doesn't necessarily end, however, it shifts to a place where a full recovery is no longer possible. And you write about the people even who hurt and disappointed you. Can you speak to this? Because I think this is very common for a lot of people. Yes. Uh, Thank you for focusing on that because it's a a very, very emotional aspect of my journey. And I know from speaking with other cancer patients that it's a shared it's a shared experience. And look, Mm -hmm. the reality here is that people, generally speaking, are uncomfortable having conversations around terminal illness, particularly when that terminal illness is applied to friendships or families where people just don't know how how to have the conversation. 
what to say. They don't want to say the wrong things. And so rather than risk saying the wrong things, in my experience, it's the case where people just decided to say nothing at all. And it was more around them kind of protecting themselves from engaging in a difficult conversation rather than it was for them to support me. I know that some people felt that they were actually supporting me by not speaking to me because some people knew that I didn't really want to get into it. I didn't really want to talk about it. And that in some cases was true. But at the end of the day, it's a journey. It's a process. This is a living and breathing process that I'm going through as of, as we speak. So people who have shied away from the relationship, mm-hmm. in my mind, it went beyond the point of repair. And I've recognized that, you know, the reality is some people are just not equipped to have these conversations with friends or family members. It's just too hard. We're not taught how to have these conversations yeah in school. We're not, we're not taught in families how to teach our kids on how to have these conversations. This is stuff that's hard, but it's stuff that's important. And for the life of me, I don't understand why we aren't exposed to more techniques on how to deal with death and dying and how to have these difficult conversations. What would be a good way for people to address this with their loved ones or friends that are suffering from cancer? Is it just to be there and to be listening and to be available? What are the do's and the don'ts, if you will? Well, I think for everyone, it's different. So I can only talk for me. I think that what I most benefited from were friends and there were there were few of them, not a lot of them, but there were few of them. Friends who offered themselves at any point if I needed them. And they would say, reach out. I don't want to bug you. So reach out if you want to speak, but I'll check in with you from time to time to see how you're doing. And I felt that that mixture of, I'm going to reach out to you from time to time, combined with, please reach out to me. I'm available to you if you want to speak. I think for me, that mixture was was a winning recipe for communication. I understand that. You talk in the book, and we've mentioned this already, but I, it can't be mentioned enough about the people that saved your life, like your beloved Cynthia, who sat by stoically at every appointment here and in the States, and whose Sunday's disposition and positivity eventually was contagious even for you. It helped you even be more positive and hopeful. And can you just elaborate briefly on how Cynthia saved your life? So she touched on it earlier in the conversation where her positivity and her focus on that 20% and her constantly challenging me as to why can't you be part of that 20%. For me, that's a standout. I mean, everything she did for me was amazing, including coming with me to all the appointments. And Cynthia doesn't have the easiest time being within a medical environment. And I knew that. (laughs) And And despite that, she really pushed herself to be there for me. And I knew that she was doing that. And she pushed herself beyond her comfort level for sure. So I think that Mm -hmm. combined with her positivity for me were were the two major standouts. Plus her just her overall nature, her her good, soft, fun-loving, very dedicated nature. It's just a fantastic 
soul found in Cynthia. Yeah, I know that. I'm with you on that. The other person who you speak about regarding your gratitude is Dr. Madeline Lee, L.I., at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. And she eventually said to you after your first meeting, I think we can do some really good work together. Can you just tell us more briefly about that relationship and how it helped you? So when I was referred to Dr. Lee at the Princess Margaret Psychosocial Department, I was in a very bad way. I had just been told I was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And I was referred to her to basically come to terms with with that fact. And I was extremely negative. I was extremely down on the on the statistics. And I was preparing myself to to die effectively. And when it became clear that I wasn't dying so fast, Dr. Lee was um, very supportive in the sense of recognizing that I am a fairly effective communicator, even if I'm communicating negative things. And she found that, I think she found that I was amenable to having advice provided to me and giving me various other ways of thinking about things. And it became clear that as time marched on that I was living and I was going to live beyond the statistics. And despite that, I was, of course, uh, depressed as one can appreciate. And she helped me through a very dark, deep depression in the first three, four years. And Mm -hmm. Dr. Lee, I believe that she saw a lot of potential in me. And I think as time went on, And as the meetings kind of built on each other, I became more and more confident. And as I was becoming more successful and it just snowballed, I came from a position where I could not talk about this with anybody, including my family, to now Mm -hmm. writing a book, being invited to be patient keynote at major cancer events. So it's the thanks to Dr. Lee that has tur- she's turned me around 180 degrees to doing what I'm doing now is just an incredible, incredible professional win for her. I can't even imagine how she feels, but I'm just so proud of her and I'm really proud of our relationship. I'm glad that you also mentioned that, and thank you to Dr. Lee. I'm I'm glad that you mentioned about how patients suffer from depression when they're going through what you're going through, when they're diagnosed with cancer. And you suffered a very strong bout of depression. And always thinking outside the box, Dr. Lee prescribed a medication to you called ketamine for depression. You know, the, these are the kinds of things people need to know about. There's so much information in this book. But in addition to all the medical stuff and all of the cool things that you've researched that are all really available in a very concrete, straightforward, clear way, very readable and easy to understand, even if you're not a medical person, um, there's no question about the profound significance and sheer power that deep love can have on a patient cancer's journey and outcome and how important emotional support is for the patient and their caregivers. And You've had this times a thousand in your love story with Cynthia. But what advice do you have for people on how to harness the cancer experience to deepen the relationships with people that matter the most to you? I think that's a great question. I I think that I can only speak from my experience. So my experience is that cancer has 
driven me closer to Cynthia. The experience of being told that you're going to die from this disease, or the likelihood is very strong that you're going to die from this disease, forces someone like me to want to get closer to someone who loves me so dearly as Cynthia does. So the advice that I would give to other cancer patients and their families are to embrace the fact that you have a disease and in some cases a life-limiting disease, but don't just focus on the fact that it's life-limiting. Focus also on the fact that you have people in your life who truly love you and who truly care for you. And the meaning of life is spending time with the people who mean the most to you. And don't squander that opportunity just because you've been leveled with a terminal diagnosis or with, a, with an advanced cancer diagnosis. Embrace the fact that more people today are living longer with advanced cancer because of scientific advancements. Use that as fuel to get closer to the people who are closest to you. Cynthia, can you speak to this as well, how love can positively impact healing? Don't answer that just yet. We're going to go on a short commercial break. When we come back, we're going to find out how love can actually impact healing. We'll be right back, back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. Hi, everyone. This is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, and I'm here with Alan Chinkowski and Cynthia Brown. We're talking about his book, On the Other Side of Terminal. And just before the break, Cynthia, I asked you how love can positively impact healing. Yeah, it's about love is an energy, right? So it's that positive energy that we need. And Mm -hmm. like a cancer, like a tumor, it has drivers for growth right? As Alan says, the tumor wants to survive and you want to survive and the two of you are competing. But Mm -hmm. love is that medicine, that positive energy that can help bring, focus the positive energy on on the healing and bringing you to a better place. The negative energy can drain you. You already have a lot of negative energy and that sucks the energy out of you. You need that energy to fight the cancer. You need the energy in your body to fight off whatever is going on. So Mm -hmm. the more positivity, the more love, it helps to fight, to fight it off. And you're benefiting from having that goodness in your life when there's a lot of badness you're facing too. Why not focus and bring whatever goodness you can? I was going to say, what happens if you don't have a Cynthia in your life? And I just sort of found the answer (laughs) because I think Cynthia is so crucial in all of this. But if you... If you don't have the Cynthia in your life, I almost want to say to people, be the Cynthia. (laughs) You know what I mean? 
Yeah. Yeah. It, you have yeah. to find that positive. Alan is um be prepared kind of person. So in being prepared, that means you prepare for the worst as well, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. being prepared for the worst can also put you on a certain side of the energy level. So if you can find also to balance where the positivity is on the other side, what's good in your life, what makes you happy, what makes you smile, what turns the sunshine on in your life, then you're bringing that positivity, using that positivity, which brings you the energy so that you have more energy to fight as opposed to draining it. Absolutely. Uh, Judy, I just want to inject just a quick second. I want to thank you. I want to thank you very much for recognizing that the book has a love story component to it. This is not a fiction. This is not a work of fiction. This is a real life story that has a real life love story involved in it. And it's such a major part of the book. Thank you for recognizing and asking the questions that focuses on it. Of course. (laughs) But also, you know, sorry, if I could just say one more thing is he talks so much about me, but there's so much that he brings (laughs) to my life and to my work. So it's not, it's not a one-sided thing. And, and what he's given me, he's given the world too. So he's a special person. And I'm sorry, I'm so emotional. <laughs> I'm crying now too. And I, and I, I can't <laughs> imagine at people not crying about this story. Alan, when you got this diagnosis, this terminal cancer diagnosis at age 47, I, I've mentioned this before that it would have finished people off emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. But you ran with it and took that diagnosis as an opportunity to not only survive, but to thrive like never before. And your daughter, Gila, is now 15. But when she was nine years old in 2017, it talks about this in the book, she recorded a song from one of your favorite musicals, In the Heights, written by Lynn manuel Miranda. And the song is titled Breathe. And I'd like to play it for our listeners now. Can you tell us a little bit about the song Breathe and what it means to you that your daughter sang this for you? So my daughter was taking vocal lessons at the time and they were focusing on various musicals in the Heights being one of them. And I went with her to most of those vocal lessons and the feeling I got whenever I watched her sing the song was just such, such joy and such, such pride And on my birthday, when I turned 48, she delivered me the song that she recorded with her vocal teacher. And it just, it was one of those moments that continues to, to just feel so good about receiving that from her at that age. And it was a very meaningful moment for me that continues to live on. I mean, I I can't tell you, I, I listen to the song almost daily. Uh, particularly before I go to sleep. And the message is to just breathe. And breathing helps so much, at least it does for me, if you just breathe. So it's the messaging that's so important to me. So so thank you for, for playing it. So here is Gila, Alan's daughter, singing Breathe. Due to international copyright law, podcasts are unable to include music. Music can only be played on the live radio broadcast. Finding Your Bliss airs every Saturday at 1 p.m. If you'd like to hear this artist's music, you can find the link to our Finding Your Bliss SoundCloud in the episode description. Wow, that was so beautiful. Thanks, Hila, and thank you all for sharing this.
I also love that you write about Alan when you talk about how important it is to be passionate about something that has no connection to your illness at all. And so in your case, this has always been the game of backgammon. Can you tell us what you love about backgammon? I don't understand it myself and all the wonderful game nights that you've enjoyed with friends and family playing your beloved game. So when I was growing up, we used to have, my friends and I used to have uh, backgammon tournaments. We'd have three, four boards going at the same time. And we would have like round robins. And it was a wonderful pastime that I gave up when I had a family and and uh, we just had no time to play backgammon anymore. And then the pandemic hit and I was looking for something to do. And Cynthia kind of knew I, I had mentioned backgammon just in passing. And she had forwarded me an email about a backgammon tournament that was that was happening for UJA, as a matter of fact. And I participated wow. in that backgammon tournament, and I realized that, hey, there's an online backgammon community now, which was great. And so I engaged in that community, and I started to learn that when you play online backgammon, you're able to look back at the game on a move-by-move -move basis, and you're able to see how effective your move was or wasn't. Um, because there's only one correct move within backgammon uh, on any given shake of the dice. And backgammon is a game of mm. skill, and it's also a game of chance. So it's that mixture of the mm. two that makes the game so fascinating for me. Anyways, so when I was playing online backgammon and I was studying my game after I played it, I began to learn better. And I began to learn from my, from my moves and how to make better moves and how to, how to make wow. less mistakes. And P.S., I was in a match online and I felt that there was 0% chance of me winning that match. In fact, with online backgammon, you can just <laughs> click a button that says resign. <laughs> if you feel that there's no chance, like why waste <laughs> your time? Why waste the time of your opponent? Just click resign. And I decided wow. not to click resign. And I decided to just play it out. And I played it out. And I started to roll really well. And my opponent started to reel, uh, <laughs> started to roll not so well. And it turned out that it became clearer that I was about to win this match. And I ended up winning this match. And it just blew me away. And I realized at that moment that even when you think that your chances of losing are virtually 0%, that you don't give up, that you keep playing the game wow. because you never know what's going to happen. And I kept playing the game and, so cool. and I won. So That's so fabulous. You, you won that game in 2021. And so actually during COVID, this actually was one of the silver linings for you, I'm sure, was relearning backgammon and uh, and winning and finding your passion again. There's so much more to talk about, everyone. And I know we have to wrap, but I just want to tell our listeners that there are a number of wonderful appendices at the back of the book that encompass your excellent lifestyle advice for surviving cancer. I encourage people to read this book on the other side of Terminal. It's fascinating stuff. You also have a, a wonderful list of recommended resources at the back of the book, places and foundations and centers that have helped you. Also, wonderful list of acknowledgments, which I referred to a, a bit earlier, where my favorite being your acknowledgement to Cynthia 
who is right here, and to your children and to your parents. There's so much here. I just want to say, I do think yours is the greatest love story of all time. And there's just so much. I, I, I don't even, <laughs> I have about a hundred more questions. Just quickly, if you could say, if there was just a word of hope for people, how ultimately can you help people live on the other side of terminal and take back their lives from cancer? Now, what's like just a word or a phrase or a mantra that will help people? Comprehensive genomic profiling. Get your tumors comprehensively sequenced because that's the only diagnosis you need to survive the longest that you can. That's great. Excellent information. What is bliss for Alan Schenkowski? Bliss for Alan Schenkowski is living longer and loving longer with the people who mean the most to me. Beautiful. And what is bliss for Cynthia Brown? Bliss is the smiles on other people's faces. Mm And, and knowing that everybody's giving to each other and, and helping each other grow and, and thrive. And I don't normally ask this, but I'm going to ask because you're so united. What is bliss for Alan and Cynthia, for both of you together? Bliss is, is being together, just spending time together, holding hands, looking at each other, being together. Yeah, I agree. Bliss is also growing together and knowing that just by being together, and living life and experiencing life more together, we're growing together. And for me, that's a major part of bliss for Alan and Cynthia is continued growth and deepening of our relationship. And learning from each other, learning, you know, the positives from both of us, the the special traits from both of us and how we can internalize those and make them part of ourselves too. That's lovely. What is the best way for people to contact you and connect with you on social media? So the best way to connect with me is through my website and you can get there through alanchenkowski.com. That's A-L-L-E-N-C-H-A-N-K-O-W-S-K-Y.com or on the other side of terminal.com. And those will get you to my website and you can connect with me there. There's also an email address within the book Um, luckily people who are reading the book are reaching back out to me and sharing their stories back with me. And it's always an amazing thing for me to receive an email from some complete stranger from some corner of the globe who's read the book and who wants to share their story back with me. It's an incredible feeling. There's also uh, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. I want to say in closing that I also love in the book that you ask people to scan the QR code in the book so they can give a review of the book on the other side of Terminal to Amazon. I want to thank you both so much, Alan and Cynthia, for being on the show today. It's really been so meaningful to have you here. Thank Thank you, you Judy. Thank you for having us. You're a special interviewer and a special person. Thank you, guys. You too. Both of you too. Thank you. Thank you. Each week, we spotlight an author, artist, yoga, meditation, or mindfulness expert, or really anyone who has found and is following their bliss. We would love to hear from you. We also highlight singer-songwriters on this show or musicians. If you're a singer, please reach out to us. And also, we'd like to know, what did you love about today's show? Are there any guests or topics that you would love us to feature on Finding Your Bliss? You can write to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. I'm also a life coach. If I can help you in any way, let me know. 
You can reach out and connect with me at findingyourbliss.com slash coaching. I'm also on Insight Timer, the number one free meditation app. And all you have to do is search up Judy Liebrack. And of course, you can always follow us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. I'd like to thank our wonderful guests, Alan Chankowski and Cynthia Brown for being on the show today. And thanks to Alan's daughter, Gila, for sharing her beautiful music with us as well. Also, thank you to Mag Ruffman, Siobhan Kylie, producer Nayira Amani, audio engineer Juliana Yanusiello, senior editor Lauren Kaminsky, video editor Sierra Brown-Rodriguez, audio producer Faz Causey, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to the Create Fertility Center. For everyone here, I'm Judy Liebrach, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.